Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm coming to you from Towncast Studios in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You know, if you guys have a podcast, a video cast, a voiceover to rec- uh, audition to record, or even an audiobook, definitely check out Towncast Studios. Matthew and Joe not only know what they're doing, but they're just, they're great guys and they're easy to work with. So go to towncaststudios.com or email them at info at towncaststudios.com. Anyway, we have a really fun show today. Uh, my friend, uh, it's weird I say fun because she's a CPA. And and it's funny because I don't know where the, and we're going to find out, maybe she knows, where that stereotype that accountants are boring came from. Now, I, I do know, I've known a lot of accountants over the years, and a lot of them are boring. But then I've also known insurance people who are boring. But for some reason, it's always stuck out that the accountants, especially, I said especially, you hear that? Oh, my God, I said especially, <laughs> that accountants... The CPAs, they say, are very boring. And we're going to find out. And my guest is from KMT Consultant. And I'm going to call her Kirsten Toller because I know people probably call her Kristen all the time. And my guest is Kirsten Toller. How are you doing, Kirsten? I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? What a great, what a great intro, but not a surprise that you would have such a great intro. Well, you're doing great. But you, you you have COVID, or you just I, we're, I I do. We're, we're people we're, we're we're doing a Zoom. Uh, Kirsten was supposed to come into the studio, and I got a text so yesterday. So annoyed that I couldn't come in the studio. And again. and I said, well, we can do it by Zoom because you know when I did stand up, it was all like the show must go on. But now, when did you find out? Because you just got back from Iceland. Where, where, tell me where you were traveling. Oh wow! So my daughters and I uh, spent two weeks. We started out uh, left the first of August and flew to Paris, and so we were there for five days. Um, That was amazing and allowed me to practice my French, which was a lot of fun. And then we spent um, three nights in Munich. And so my older daughter had done five years German in high school and did an exchange when she was a junior in high school. And so her German came in handy, which was impressive. And then we spent four nights in Iceland. Yes. So we were we were in Reykjavik for five days, technically. And then we had a stayover. I learned it's not a layover, but a stayover because it was 23 hours in Heathrow. And so we actually got a hotel room um, in Heathrow Terminal 4. Don't know if you've ever flown through Heathrow. That is a big airport. And so I thought O'Hare in Chicago was big, but I think Heathrow might have a beat. I'm not sure. Um, but we did take the underground into London proper, uh, went into Piccadilly, which is reminded me of Times Square in New York. And um, my oldest daughter and I did that. So I, my younger daughter is 16. My older daughter is 20. So we came back on Sunday, um, kind of just acclimated to the time. I, I really didn't have a, a major issue with jet lag or anything. Um, and then Monday night, I, I felt like a little stuffy, little scratchy throat. And then Tuesday morning, I woke up and I honestly thought it was my dog. So I've been away from my dog for two weeks. And I thought, oh, I bet I'm allergic to the dog. Nope. COVID. So we, so my, my older daughter actually had the same symptoms when we were in Reykjavik and, you know, there's, we didn't have the ability to like run out and get a test or whatever, but it, it presented like a cold. And we had literally transitioned from 80, 90 degree weather to 50 degree weather. And that'll screw up your body anyway. So she was fine in two days. She was just like, whatever. And she's already had COVID twice. She goes to school in Philly. Um, She's had COVID twice and my entire family are, you know, all the shots. So I don't know, I guess it just is what it is. My husband is a nurse and swears that everyone's going to get COVID. So if I have to have it, um, I'm, I, I'm really very lucky. 
Um, it's annoying more than anything. I'm stuffy. You could probably hear that a little bit in my voice. Um, I did a prospective client call yesterday morning before I had tested and just figured I you know, had a cold. And I knew this person was a good prospective client for me because when I began to speak to her within a minute, I said, and pardon me if I sound like Selma Diamond from Night Court. And she laughed and I said, you're my people. So yeah, my, my voice was very, um, very Selma. See, now that that's, goes back to the uh, the CPAs being boring. Uh, what CPA <laughs> knows, makes a Selma Diamond reference? I mean, that's like, you know, maybe they'll make a Marsha Warfield reference, but a Selma Diamond reference from uh, Night Court. So, so where do you think, no, seriously, so where do you think the stereotype of the boring accountant came from? I mean, because you're an accountant, you're a CPA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not boring. I mean, you listen to Queensryche. And, you know, once again, that's not boring. Where where do you think that that came from? Because it's it's something that's, as long as I've been around, I mean, I grew, growing up, my my mom and dad had a good family friend who was an accountant, and they always said he was boring. And I don't know if they stuck that in my mind or he was boring. But where do you think it came from? Do you have any idea? I mean, the only the only thing I can think of is just the nature of the work is stereotypically dry, right? So, you know, we're we're managing numbers and doing math, you know, um, memorizing rules and applying them depending upon what type of CPA you are. So I'm a CPA in practice. I do tax um, advisory and compliance services. That's really been where I, I get happy, right? Is doing tax work, which is got even worse, right? God, I'm just like digging a hole myself. Um, but, but there are accountants that do audit work. There are accountants that work in industry. There are accountants that do managerial work. They do job costing. So there's a whole lot of, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to equate it to like the medical field. There's a whole lot of specialties in accounting. Um, but I think by and large at its Genesis, it's numbers and rules. How boring. Um, I actually have, framed in my office a picture from the um saturday evening post from like the 40s 30s or 40s and it's it's a man sitting at a desk and it's talking about taxes and apparently back then taxes were due march 15th for everyone instead of april 15th for individuals um some businesses are still due march 15th on a calendar year see there's a rule um but the but the the guy looks absolutely overwhelmed i mean it's a lovely norman rockwell painting right but he's sitting at a desk piled high with papers and like who in their right mind would do that you know um so yeah i i think just by and large the genesis of what accountants do is is you know mired in in numbers and rules now anybody who's into that thinking it's fun is like you know needs needs some additional help i think how screwed up for it was uh, last year for you when there it was the extensions and like all the taxes were thrown off. Anyway, how bad? I mean, because it's like anything. You're an accountant and you're used to a certain deadline. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like anything. You know, like I'm a football fan. I know that Eagles start on this week, but then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, if I went to watch a game and it wasn't on, and I'm like, wait, I wait, what? I mean, what happened to you? Because explain the change of date, or was it extended, or what? What happened during COVID? It was it was two years really of of crap. So and I say crap because for those of us that do, you know, 
find comfort in those deadlines. I mean, yeah, it's painful trying to push, you know, pushing a lot of information through a very narrow tunnel sometimes. Um, there are extensions, like right now I'm working on stuff for clients who are on extension, but by and large, we try not to do that. You want to kind of get everybody done as, as quickly as possible, but properly. You don't rush through anything. So um, that said, in 2020, um, we were working on 2019's tax return. So to, to add even more colorful um, commentary, in 2018, the tax laws changed. Major overhaul to the tax code. And so for many of us who've been in industry for 20 plus years, um, many of my colleagues at the time when I was working you know, at another firm were 20 years older than me, 30 years older than me. I mean, this is all they've known. And now all of a sudden we're dealing with that. So the 2018 tax season, which happened in 2019, was already a hurdle. And you're you're trying to kind of talk to the new staff, like, hey man, don't give up. You know, it gets better, like it's really not this bad. And then 2020. And 2020 basically, because so much shut down, um, the IRS is a government agency, it shut down. So there was nobody there to answer phone calls or very limited, nobody there. They're still digging out of paperwork that was mailed to them because the IRS likes snail mail. Um, and so they they were you know behind in all of these things that, that they had coming in. So in order to kind of mitigate some of this, this slowdown, um, the IRS pushed the April filing deadlines to July in 2020. Um, that was painful because it was bad enough. Everyone sort of navigating the whole personal, emotional side of, of what COVID did, right? But now those of us in, in this industry were like, oh, and by the way, um, don't plan on enjoying your summer. Not that you could really go anywhere anyway, because we're going to have you work on tax returns too. So it, it was it was really a challenge. It was a it was an emotional, psychological challenge. Um, in 2020. Then in 21, because the IRS still wasn't quite caught up yet, um, I called it an expansion of the deadline. I absolutely refused to credit them with another extension similar to that March extension. So we had until May 15th um, for 2020's taxes filed in 21. Not to mention the fact that there were all these goofy things thrown in there um, recovery rebate credits because the stimulus that was being received this past year, we had people receiving advanced child tax credit. So there was all this stuff, like new stuff. I would say we haven't had a normal, call it normal tax season since 2019, which would have been 20. No, that's a lie. 2018, which would have been 2017's tax year. Yeah. This so, year was, uh, you know, blessedly normal. I use air quotes again, um, but you know, you're you're still playing catch up. I mean, every every practitioner who navigates the same space, the same market that I do, I can can't imagine, and those that I've spoken to can confirm, it was rough. It was still a rough season because you're still kind of playing catch up from the stuff that happened from the prior year. Not everybody is is all that excited about bringing you their tax stuff because it's like you know two years of ptsd so you know i mean it's it's i'm hopeful that this coming tax season will just be the, the best one yet that's what we always say now now what made you become an accountant like when you were a kid did you want to be an accountant i mean it's something no. that i mean were you good with numbers tell me the path of 
Kirsten becoming an accountant because it's not like, I mean, I'm sure some people wake up and they're a kid and they, they sit there and they go, oh, wow, you know, like they like stats or they like numbers and that's normal. I love stats when I was a kid, but then I was like, mm-hmm. eh, it was eh, bored me, but I get distracted. Right. But what, what is your, what was your path to becoming an accountant? Um, so I originally started out uh, going to college. I was an undeclared business major, but I had worked in retail. I mean, when I was really young, you know, there was the, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I realized that, you know, maybe I wanted to be a teacher because teachers are fun. Plus I love, you know, school supplies. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a teacher. Right. And all the love in the world to the doctors and teachers who were among my family and friends, um, that was my path. So when I went to college, my initial thought was to be, to, was to go into marketing. So I thought, oh, I've worked in retail marketing. That makes total sense, right? Um, I believe in the playbill my senior year. So I was I was the lead in the school play my senior year, the musical. We did Once Upon a Mattress, hilarious. Um, and in that playbill, I still have it. And it said that I was going to Ryder College, which is now Ryder University in the fall. And I was majoring in business because I intended to go into pharmaceutical sales. It's in, it's on, it's in, it's in print. Um, but then I started to take, first of all, I took marketing classes. Oh my God, that was so boring. I thought it was so boring. I was like, I can't do this. This is not fun. Um, but I had a, I had uh, statistics and calculus. They disguised it as something called business methods one and two. Um, so business methods one was the very first business math course that I took as a business major, like a prereq. And my professor pulled me aside after like the first exam. And she said, you have an aptitude for this. Have you ever considered becoming a statistician? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm going to be a marketing major. Are you kidding? No, I'm not doing that. Then when I realized how much I didn't like marketing, um, I had taken calculus in high school. So I had my old notebook from high school. My calc teacher in high school was amazing. And I, I worked hard in that class to get a B. I mean, it was hard. When I went to college, I brought this notebook with me. I aced college calculus, which sounds ridiculous, right? But I had all the tools. So it was truly a nod in, in homage to my teacher. But I realized, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at math. And I've always been good at math. Um, when I was younger, I you know, tested out of math stuff, you know, just whatever. Um, but I, but I liked math. I liked math. So as I continued through my college experience, when I got into like second year, got into the actual accounting classes, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Oh, so this has to bounce to this. Oh, that makes sense. So, so it made sense to me. Um, I liked it as I got into my major um, I had at one point thought about majoring in actuarial science, which is even more like math. Um, and one of the smartest people that I knew at Ryder, um, he went into actuarial science. Two weeks into the the fall semester of junior year, he's in my intermediate accounting class. And I look at him and I'm like, what are you doing here? And he goes, linear algebra? No. And I was like, okay, cool. Made the right decision. Um, it just made sense to me. It made sense. The thing that I like the most about it is that there's there's definitely a part of me that is introverted. So I think they call that an ambivert, somebody who's introverted and extroverted. Um, I like to, to work alone. I like to work independently, but I also love to work with people. So being in public accounting kind of gave me that 
it, it feeds that side of me. So I like the, I like the, the, the stuff that makes sense in accounting to me. Um, I like the rules. I like to read the rules. Um, I follow the rules. I am not a rule breaker when it comes to that kind of stuff. So I am a conservative tax preparer. Um, I do have some clients who are like, well, how do, how do I save money on this? And I'm like, I don't know. Here's what you need to do. Well, there's no like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more like Monty Python. I'm like, no, this is, this is how you do it. If you want that, I'm not your person. So I think the fact that I liked rules, the thing, the, the fact that I think it made sense to me because everything balanced. Um, and then as I got further into my career, the more I realized, wow, you actually can work with other people or you can meet clients or you could talk to clients. And then I realized I was good at that too. So all these things about me kind of aligned and the answer was accounting. Well, now, okay, when we had talked when we had coffee, you, you have a tagline and I, I it skips my mind about the accounting, but you know, you, you got out, you got out of college and you're working for a firm, but you mm -hmm. recently went on your own and how, and that, mm -hmm. now what, okay. So was it something, was it a scary jump or was it just something that you felt it was in your growth that it was time for that? How did, tell me the path of how you went from working because you were with a big firm, I believe. And then, mm -hmm. and then you left and then you went out on your own. Tell me how that all happened. And then actually what was your thought? Like the, the night you gave your resignation letter, say, here's my two weeks. I'm fucking out of here. Now uh, there's my, here's, here's my two weeks. You know, a bunch of accountants would be like, what did you say? Um, no, what was the, what was the, uh, tell me the process that, that made you decide to go on your own because you're, you're doing very well. People who I, I've talked to people who work with you who love you. Um, oh, tell wonderful. me, tell me the, uh, tell me the whole process. So um, I started out after college. I was I was one of the smart kids. So I started out after college. I went to work for a big six. So talk about big firm, right? Um, but I was in audit and I hated it. So I ended up going to work for a mid-sized, like a regional firm um, in South Jersey, which is where I lived, which is where I still live. And um, I loved the work. But at that point in my career, kind of thought, oh, aren't I supposed to like leave and go work for a corporation now and kind of like get paid more and work less hours. Like, you know, it was sort of like the, the idea in hindsight too. I think there was a piece of me that did not know, but as a female, I didn't really feel supported in my profession. Let me interrupt I had you. Some let, people. Let, let me interrupt yeah. you real quick. What, what was the world like for a female accountant? Because I've, I've know there's mm -hmm. certain, I always tell the story about my mom, you know, she went to university of temple graduated yeah. in 1952 with a degree in marketing. She was the only woman in her class. By her junior year, she was already had a job secured at Campbell's Soup for when she graduated. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she didn't wear her engagement ring to work because everyone thought she was gonna get pregnant and quit. And she actually waited a while. And that was back in 1952. But for you at that point, what was it like being a woman in the accounting world? Was it still prehistoric times somewhat? So I think, and I've, I've actually been interviewed about this before, but I think it really depends on where you were. So even in the big six accounting, I remember, so I used to have to wear suits with skirts, pantyhose and heels every day. There were no pants. There was no casual Friday. They didn't have any of that. I didn't see that or feel that for the first time until the firm that I left to go work in corporate from 
um, instituted that on like special Fridays, like the end of tax season or, you know, whatever. And, and so I, I, I really didn't know. I was just brought up to think that this is how you dress and this is how you go to work and you put your head down and you do your work and that's what you do. The women that I worked with at the regional firm, I'll use that as an example, um, not many of them were promoted. They were promoted, but if you had a child, you worked part-time. And I overheard people speaking um, who should not have been speaking this way about some of these women. Like, oh, she's not gonna be able to get to that. She, you know, she's got the kid, whatever. Oh, now in the back of my mind, I was like 25, 26. I wasn't married yet. I wasn't thinking about having kids yet. So in my head, I was just like, well, that that's, that's kind of, that's kind of fucked up, but like, it's not going to affect me directly. Like there was no, there was no real um, solidarity for me in that, in that space. But I can honestly say that, you know, it, it, it was, it gave me pause. It definitely gave me pause. Um, beyond that, you know, I began to see that women were treated a little bit better um, as time went on. But again, it was the culture of the place. So when I went into corporate America, there was a, there were more women in leadership roles. There were more, um, there were more things kind of happening that felt like, oh, Okay, so a woman accountant, you're 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 kind of seeing that, but again, I think it just really depended on the culture of where I was. Um, by and large, though, I mean there was there was an old partner at this firm who called all the women babe. All the secretaries were girls. Yeah. See that you know that's funny. I I do I I do like when the the cashier at Shoprite calls me babe. I don't I don't mind that. That always makes me happy. <laughs> it's just one of those things that she's. Uh, I don't mind that. Okay, so let's get back to your career path. So you you were in corporate and then So I went I went ended up going to work um in corporate America. So I went to work for very large like Fortune 100 companies. I spent 2 years at Cigna Insurance. I spent 6 years at Verizon. I was there actually during the GTE Bell Atlantic merger. So that was kind of cool. Um and did lots of things while I was there. A lot of it though was centered around tax. When um, Verizon moved to Basking Ridge, uh, it was a very long commute for me. It was like 85 miles one way. I already had my oldest. Um, I was working an abbreviated schedule. I worked four days a week. Um, but ironically, even before that happened, when I moved from the one firm that I had worked at to go work for Cigna for that like better hours, better pay scenario, oh, I'm getting married so, you know, I might not want to work 80, 90 hours a week anymore. Oh, if I want to have children, geez, I don't know how supportive these folks are going to be. Um, you know, that that kind of was 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 in the in the back of my mind. But ironically, as I made that transition from public to corporate, I found out I passed the CPA exam. And so my husband, who we were not married yet, but he was in school um, on the GI Bill, he came home from um, work. He's a nurse. And he asked me with my license, could I do people's taxes and stuff? And I said, yep. So five people that he worked with at the hospital he was at um, came to me. I ended up doing their tax returns. I like to say five turned into 13, turned into 30. So while I was transitioning from public accounting into corporate life, um, I started my own practice by accident. And so when I left my old firm also, I had one client 
this lovely older gentleman that my mom worked with. And so I physically took, it was paper, I physically took his file when I left, the day I left, and walked out the door with his file. And that was kind of the start of it. So for a long time, um, through the Verizon years, through the Cigna years, through the consulting, I worked in consulting for almost 10 years, um, I had my practice. And it was great because I had the best of both worlds. I could do, you know, analytical work for someplace outside of my own practice. And that kind of fed that, you know, inner nerd inside. And then I could work with small business owners or kind of give people that personalized attention, which is something that I have, you know, um, sort of cultivated as my culture over the years. Um, and I was able to do that. And so I built this practice completely by accident. When my consulting job moved to New York City, again, that was not a commute that I was willing to make. And so someone from my past popped up. She was now doing business development at the now big four firm that I had originally started with when it was big six. They were looking for tax people, senior level tax people. You'd be great. So I went in, interviewed, um, got the job, and 90% of my book was audited again. And I was like, man, this sucks. This is not what I want. And so made some great, you know, reconnections there basically because I'd worked there before. Um, but it wasn't for me. It was not a good fit for me. I'm not a super big firm type person. And so my clients stayed separate because this firm had no interest in my clients at all. I then reconnected with someone that I had worked with at the regional firm. So it was kind of like I was moving back through my history chronologically. And so I reconnected with someone who was now a partner at another firm. He was very impressed with what I was doing, wanted to introduce me to their COO, who potentially could connect me with some people that might be looking to offload their, um, you know, smaller books of business, whatever, like to support me. When I went in to have this discussion, they basically made me an offer um, because they liked the fact that I had my own book. They liked the fact that I had good soft skills. Um, they were looking for younger partners. The caveat was that I had to bring my book with me. And that was the first time I'd ever had to consider that. I always had my practice. I never had to think about it before. So I agreed. Two and a half years into my tenure, though, you, you start to feel the, the firm is growing. And a lot of my clients weren't desirable anymore. And I was starting not to fit in. And when you've kind of been through that once before, you're like, wait a minute, this is deja vu. I've been here before. This is not, this is not it. I had thought about going out on my own. Maybe, maybe now's the time. So through some, you know, I made some good connections at my last firm. I worked in two different offices there, um, but it was my partner in the last office that I was in, the managing partner there said to me during a review, and this was during COVID. So we're all like remote, right? Um, she's like, the staff love you. You do great work and you clearly can bring in business. But I just feel like you're not happy here. And I was like, wow, she's right. I'm not. So she and I had a conversation and she said, you know, very um, clearly she would deny it. But if I ever was looking to leave, she would help me to the best of her ability. She would help me. So in the early part of November of 2020, um, there was a mutual decision. I mean, the firm was just like, we just, we don't know where you're going here. And I'm like, you know what? I don't know where I'm going here either. 
Um, they did not make it easy for me to take all of my clients with me, but they did not um, stop me from going after them, which was nice. Um, I could talk about it now. There's a, you know, there's non-competes and things that you sign. So from a legal perspective, it's messy. Um, I've since learned that attorneys don't have to go through this. I'm like, wow, maybe I picked the wrong line of work, but no. Um, it, it was something that I think all of my experiences led me to. I believe that I was always meant to work for myself. Um, but more importantly, it's allowed me to attract clients that really are people I can build meaningful relationships with. I can add value in a way that freaks most people out. Most people don't like to talk about taxes. I have clients still now that are like, man, I'm sorry it took me so long to get you my stuff. This is just my least favorite thing. I was like, yo, this is the first time we're working together. Send me your stuff. This is my most favorite thing. You know, we all have our things. So that that's kind of where everything came from. I think it was just a matter of experiences and things that sort of, because I was listening, led me to realize, hey, this is what you're good at, Kirsten. This is where you're going to add value in the world. You're not going to add value being in some giant firm. You're not going to add value putting your head down, doing work and not talking to anybody. Um, you're going to add value with the relationships that you can build and the knowledge that you can impart and places where you can share your skills that are appreciated and valued. That makes me kind of weird. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy to hear that the people that you've spoken with that work with me are happy because that's at the end of the day, that's what I want. I'm not going to get rich servicing the market that I service. I'm, I'm not looking to get rich servicing the market that I service, but I want to make an impact and I want to make, um, to build relationships with the people that I, that I serve. Now, you know, you talk about the people you serve, you know, I met you through networking. I think we mm -hmm. met, I mean, there's so many networking groups, there's tons of them, but right. how important has networking been to you building your book, as you call it? Was it, was it always, I mean, do you have a lot of clients refer people? I mean, what is, what has networking meant to you? So ironically, when I had, you know, it's been a lot of trial and error for me and it's been um, time under pressure, right? So I, I would I would have um, in the infancy of my practice, I didn't have to market because people came to me because, oh, so-and-so says you're great, um, let's work together. Or someone I used to work with had a client who needed tax work. And so they would send, you know, they would say, oh, so-and-so, you know, needs, and by and through trial and error, you would get to know, you know, what's a good referral, what's not a good referral. How do you kind of sniff it out? Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at figuring that out pretty quickly. And it's not necessarily that the referral is not good. It's that it might not be good for me, but I also have a network of people because of my experiences, um, that I can refer people to. Um, so for me, networking was never really something that I, when I tried to do it, I sucked at it. I sucked. I would, I would go to like events and have my my business cards ready and just be like, yes, I'm going to hand out all my business cards. I'm going to bring in all this business. And that's not how it works. How it works, as you know, is that you build relationships with people. But I didn't know that. And so I ended up feeling like I needed a Silkwood shower after some of these networking events because it was like, please scrub me and pour hot steaming bleach on me. Like, I feel disgusting. This is not, this is not my scene. 
What really made a difference for me, there were actually three very pivotal networking moments for me. Um, and I'm glad you're asking this question because it gives me you know, an opportunity to, to give some people credit and also to reflect on it. The first was really when I was at the last, the last tour of duty I did with the big four that I was at. Um, they brought in a marketing person, like a salesperson, because at my level, they expected you to bring in business, right? And so I've been bringing in business all along, just kind of like whatever. I might maybe I'd throw my, you know, advertisement in a local whatever. And if one person came and and through that, then it was worth it, right? But it didn't invest a lot of money in marketing because they didn't really know how to be effective with it. And so I met a gentleman named Todd Cohen. I don't know if you know Todd, but if you don't, I will introduce you to him. He is dynamic and lovely. Um, he's got a whole like he's a keynote speaker. He goes around the country and speaks. But he taught us about our, um, basically our virtual network. And through the training that he did with us, he and I ended up building a nice rapport. And he said, you know, I, I, I see that you have just naturally never really burned a bridge, have you? And I'm like, well, no, I don't go out of my way to piss people off. Like, he said, you would be surprised at how many people he goes, and you didn't do it on purpose, right? And I was like, well, no. I mean, there are some people that I didn't care for very much that I used to work with, but I certainly am not going to like piss in their cereal bowl before I walk out the door. Like, that's just dumb. He said, you'd be amazed at how many people do, though. Um, so your ability to not piss people off and have people still be willing, like, he said, let me ask you a question. That boss that you had 10 years ago, he's like, if you, if you called them right now, would they pick up the phone? I said, Probably. Or if I left the message, they would call me back. And he said that that's what I'm talking about. So I learned that I have this organic ability to not necessarily light shit on fire before I walk out of the room, which is a good thing. Then when I was at the firm that I was at before I broke out on my own officially, I realized very quickly that in the office that I was in, um, I was surrounded by successful predominantly male middle-aged partners they all had very very deep-rooted networking groups like networking contacts and because they've been in the area forever um and so what i found was that i was going to have to reinvent my own way to network because all these people already knew people from my firm and oh yeah i've worked with so-and-so for 25 years well it's not going to help me build a book so I ended up meeting someone named Paul Conti, who also was doing this sort of new networking type thing. I've met some great people through him, um, but by and large, it was his process that really um, attracted me. Now he's since crafted and honed this. It's not exactly as, um, I'll say raw as it was when I met him, but the rawness of it is what drew me. And basically it's that you, you learn to you network with people that are introduced to you by people that you already know, love, and trust. And then as you're networking with those people, you decide if you're going to build a relationship with them, but then it makes it easier to network them or connect them with other people because you already know, love, and trust them. It's organic. It's human nature. It's human relationship. Successful business to me is built on relationship. What I was navigating for 20 years prior, 15 years prior was the idea that, oh, because I'm an accountant and we have a conversation, you're gonna wanna refer me business. 
doesn't work like that. That's why I've never really been in a lot of these, like um, a lot of people have success in like the BNI groups and the LITIPS, you know, you're, you're, you're in these groups, but I've had a lot of people tell me, you know, that they just really wanted you to like pump out a whole bunch of names to them. And I'm like, well, geez, I can't ever join a group like that. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be beneficial to anybody in that group. Not even me, nobody else. Um, and then through COVID, I kind of realized like, hey, some of these relationships that I've already cultivated, um, they most definitely are helping me kind of grow all of the Zoom networking. None of my colleagues were doing that. Nobody was doing that. But I was like, man, I miss networking with people. I miss my, I miss my, my networking like connections just from a human perspective, you know, um, I was in, I was in trouble emotionally. I'm like, geez, I'm, I, I need to, I can't go anywhere. Like, what am I going to do? So these Zoom networking groups really helped me foster relationships with people that I might have met once or twice, but here we are, you know, undivided attention, 45 minutes. This is something, this is something. Um, but it's, 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 become apparent to me that my networking style is very much like yours. Um, very much like I'll use Kurt, Kurt Fulcher is a great example. It's, it's, there are so many people that I've met as a result, Bob Kennedy, like all of these great people, um, and Marie Leota, like all of these people that they're service without expectation. They want you to meet the people that they know because they think that this is, this is going to be a good connect for you. I get nothing from this, but this is going to be a good connect for you. And that that mindset of I'm not going to get anything from this, but I just want to see you succeed. Those are my people, too. Those are the people that I network with. And that's what networking is for me. It's a relationship. I'm not I don't do a lot of these other groups. I don't do a lot of these groups where there's just a bunch of people in the room and, you know, I'm, that's not my strength. That's not, I can be in those rooms. I can make friends. I'm a likable person. I can make friends, but I don't know necessarily that my networking comes in that package. It might start there, but I've been doing this for long enough that I, I know, I know how I network and I know that I can feel the people that network well, like I do from like a mile away. Now, with all that being said, and your path to where you've been, what is your future outlook for KMT Consulting? What do you want to get from this? I mean, is it something that, you know, do you want to keep building? I mean, of course you want to make money, but is it something that you want to get certain clients? You want to help people? What do you, what do you want? I mean, right now, after the whole path you've been through, what are your goals with now that you're on your own, you've actually found where you should be. What are your mm -hmm. goals and where do you want to take that? So this is a great question because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, this year in particular was, I, I jokingly call it the year of discovery. So I know all the things that I know um, from having worked in this industry for a long time, but when I'm responsible for everything, it's, oh, I gotta find a resource for this. I can't do this my, on my own anymore if I'm gonna grow. And we've been growing. We've been very fortunate. Um, there's just lots of these great 
individuals and business owners that are kind of heading our way um, that want a relationship with their tax advisor. They want somebody they could pick up the phone and call and ask a question of and not feel nervous about. Um, it usually takes a year or so of somebody working with me where they kind of realize that I'm not joking. Like this is kind of what you see is what you get. I don't deal in super complex tax issues. There's plenty of firms out there that do that. Um, but what I will offer seems to be of interest to people. And so the goal, I think, for us right now, um, I brought in an administrative manager this year. I, I didn't have a designated person prior to now. Um, I have three other preparers that work with me. One is a CPA. One is going to get her CPA. She's a master's. And one is just an amazing tax preparer who's worked with me for, gosh, almost 15 years now and just loves the work as much as I do. Um, so I have these really amazing women that are working with me. I've had men work with me over the years. It's not like, you know, I did that on purpose or anything. Um, but it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, as I'm kind of realizing more and more about what our capabilities are and, and kind of making our message more clear, more of what we're looking for is is finding us that in my mind is preparers is support um and is also the the client base that we're going to serve i am 50 so i would be remiss if i didn't say i'm 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 thinking also well what does my five-year plan look like what does my 10-year plan look like and i'm not i've never been ironically i've never been somebody that sits down you know, and, and does all the detail number crunching. And here's my business model. And I need to make this much money by this time period. But what I have been doing is looking at the trending for my practice. And in my mind in 10 years, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be trying to think about, you know, what my next chapter in life is going to look like. The beautiful thing about what I do is that I could, I could do this forever. Um, originally when I had my practice, I had, an old boss in consulting. He's still one of my mentors to this day, amazingly brilliant and very funny man. And he said, because he knew that I did tax work on the side. And he said, oh, I've done that for years. He goes, I've sold my practice three times. These people still keep coming back. And I just thought that was kind of funny because it's true. Um, when you find a good tax preparer, or you find somebody that you trust. Statistic I read once upon a time said that people change tax providers 1.2 times in their lifetime. That's not great odds for me, right? So, you know, it's not like people are, are running around, like looking for a new accountant all the time. Um, and there are plenty of great preparers out there. There are plenty of great firms similar to mine, similar market space, like just great people that run them. I could rattle off a handful of them right now that you and I both know, great people. Um, but each of us has our own brand and each of us has our own um, culture and vibe. And so, you know, having that, when my old boss told me, keep doing what you're doing because it's gonna be your retirement plan. I was like, whoa, that's wild. I hadn't thought about that. He's like, you can do this as much or as little as you want. That's the beauty of this business. If my practice gets too big and I don't feel like I can service my clients the way I want to, and I can't bring in new people to assist in that process the way I want to, um, well, then I, I have a decision to make, you know, which, which of my clients do I want to refer to some of my colleagues? Like it's hard. It's for me, it's hard to put a solid stamp or fence 
around what I think KMT is going to look like in five years or 10 years. But what I can tell you is that it will, it will still need to feel the same. The minute that it starts to feel too big, I will know that I, I need to, I need to adjust. I need to course correct. I need to bring in, you know, some folks like, Hey, I have these clients can't service them or they're not quite fitting the vibe here, but I know they'd be great for you. Keeping my network strong, keeping my relationships strong with my clients and my colleagues. Um, I would say that's probably the, the three-year goal for KMT because then the business will kind of find its way as it will. Whatever's supposed to be here is going to be here. Well, there you have it, people, the plan. And uh, how can people get in touch with you, Kirsten? If they want, want people to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Really, the best way is through my website. Um, I have a, a contact us page, goes right into an email to me, which is awesome, makes it so much easier. Um, our website is www.kmtconsultingllc, don't forget the LLC.com. So, people, go to her website, check out Kirsten. She's great and she likes Queens Rake. We didn't talk about that, but that's another time. <laughs> we didn't talk about any of my crazy uh, metal yet. <laughs> yeah, we didn't crazy metal. But some people go check out. Uh, email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. Um, basically, if you need someone to do an interview for you, I will interview you professionally and you can put it on your website. Also, if you know anyone who's looking for a speaker about networking, I have some great stories, entertainment stories, one even how I ended up at Taylor Hawkins' 30th birthday party. You're not hearing that in South Jersey. Also, listen to my other uh, show, Cooper Talk. That's at coopertalk.net. And people, don't forget, uh, check out Towncast Studios at towncaststudios.com. They're great. They have all your needs that you'll want. Joe and Matthew are awesome. Go check them out and email them at info at towncaststudios.com. So I want to thank you for listening to The Coop Tank, and I will talk to you guys next time.